You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On today's episode, I speak with Jens Molbeck, who's the founder of New Impact and also Coinstar. New Impact is a humanity benefit nonprofit based in Seattle, Washington. They're seeking to change the way the world finds opportunities and solves problems by pioneering the field of tri-sector innovation. They inspire and enable innovators and organizations to design solutions and business models that repurpose and realign the best resources available within the private and social and public sectors. Jens first realized the potential for tri-sector innovation when he founded Coinstar in 1990. His goal was to create a company that could simultaneously benefit the private, public, and nonprofit sectors. Today, Coinstar has processed trillions of coins and billions of dollars for millions of people, raising over 150 million in donations to nonprofits and saving governments billions of dollars, all the while providing a valued consumer service and increasing spendable cash power. After the success of Coinstar, Jens realized tri-sector business models could be applied to many types of organizations with the potential to help transform society. He's a native of Seattle, avid hiker, backcountry skier, and enthusiast of landscape architecture, holds an MBA from Stanford, and a bachelor's from Yale University. Now, if you don't remember Coinstar, they're the ones with the green kiosk, usually at the edge of the grocery store. You pour in your coins and you can get cash back, or you can make a donation as part of it. They also have other business lines. The business has been through a lot since he left, but he did take it public, which uh, we touch on. We talk about the story of Coinstar and when the mission came into it, how he learned how to talk about it, the tri-sector model in more detail. I'm sure you're wondering about it, including some examples of it. I had a lot to learn about it and I'm excited to share with you. So please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good, Jens. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, nice to meet you, Miles. Yeah, great to meet you as well. I'm curious, you started Coinstar. When did the mission come into it? <laughs> the, the mission, you know, it's funny, a lot of people ask me, the mission came in at the very beginning. In fact, before Coinstar, the mission really started. I um, started Coinstar when I was 26, right out, of, um, right out of business school. But the seed of it really started before business school. I'd been working as a financial analyst for Morgan Stanley out of college um, in the mid 80s. And it was really interesting work. You know, it was like working 80, 90 hours a week, you know, gronking away on spreadsheets and stuff. Um, but I've been raised in a family. Um, my parents are Danish immigrants that had sort of a you know broader sense of civic responsibility. My parents cared about good government um, and also you know community mindedness. So I was working really hard at Morgan Stanley, and my pup, which felt great from you know kind of learning about private sector companies, but my public sector engagement was really voting absentee, you know, at the end of the year or late. And my nonprofit work was you know, donating to the Cousteau Society, you know, $10 at the end of the year. And it just felt really out of balance. And I was starting to think about a career that could be interesting. And I asked people who are older than I said, you know, how do you actually kind of sequence a career if you want to, you know, work for companies and also care about the social sector and the public sector? And the advice I got in the mid 80s was, you know, first go to the private sector and, you know, establish a company. And that's interesting. And, you know, you know, do well for yourself and a future family. And then maybe rotate out to the social sector, you know, volunteer at a soup kitchen or serve on a board, or if you're lucky, become a philanthropist. 
And then later in life, you could actually do work in the public sector, which was considered a give back at that point. And then you kind of retire and die. So I kind of joked that was the five part career path that I, I wasn't interested in. But I got really interested. Could you actually work in all three sectors at once? Could, there, could your actual job you know, integrate, you know, doing well and doing good, which was the language of their time. And so I was thinking about that for a while. And when I got to Stanford, I was fed, you know, a nonstop diet of entrepreneurship. And I did not think about myself as an entrepreneur at all. I was a, I was a spreadsheet jockey. Um, but you hear enough stories about people who started things and what worked and what didn't work. And I got curious about the idea of taking a risk. And the idea from Coinstar just came from the fact that I moved a lot and I had a jar of coins on my desk and it got bigger and bigger. And as a kid, I used to wrap them up and take them down to the bank and the bank stopped taking them. Anyway, so I started taking, you know, started doing some research on the coin market my second year of business school and stacked all my classes on, on two days a week. And I wrote to the Fed and the Mint and I learned that, you know, they produced about $15 billion worth of coins to supply the U.S. economy and coins lasted about 30 years. And then I did a bunch of research outside of Bay Area uh, supermarkets, standing outside of Safeway and Lucky stores, you know, saying, hi, I'm a grad student, give me coins. And what I learned was there was about $8 billion sitting on America's dresser tops that were out of circulation. And the other $7 billion actually circulated and created this $150 billion market. So I, here I was second year business school. I thought, well, that's a really big untapped market where I could start a company, a place where other people aren't. But I also thought about the social sector. And I realized that coins and charity had a long history, like March of Dimes or Salvation Army, you know, with the red uh, buckets outside the stores at the holidays. And I also thought that you know, the, the product itself wasn't very good because half the coins went missing. So if we could sort of start a recycling phenomenon uh, for the government, we'd actually be able to save them a lot of money. So that was with the genesis of Coinstar. So the idea of sort of, you know, startup for good was actually there before I started the company. I was looking for a way to, you know, work in all three sectors and have my, you know, the lion's share of my effort you know, be meaningful. And going back that far was a less popular notion among investors that you could make money for investors while also doing good for society. Was that a tough message to deliver? Yeah, I was scared of it actually in the beginning. And, you know, I started Coinstar in 1990, right out of grad school. And I didn't implement the donation feature, Coins That Count, um, until five years later, because I was uh, fearful that investors thought that I wasn't, wouldn't be focused on it. But the cool thing about the Coinstar um, model was actually working in all three sectors was synergistic. You didn't have to give anything up. You actually made the company stronger by thinking about the self-interest um, of all three sectors. You know, so for instance, we were growing you know, pretty quickly and we'd had our largest rollout ever in Los Angeles with Ralph's and Bond stores, put out a hundred machines, which was a lot for a little company. And I got back to Seattle. I had a phone call from the Fed that was pretty much along the lines of who are you? What are you doing? Uh, come to Washington, D.C. and explain yourself because the West Coast has canceled all future penny orders. And it was an exciting call to get, but also kind of terrifying. But what happened was we spent a lot of time with the Fed in D.C. and they really fell in love with us. They were like, this is so interesting. You know, you guys are essentially creating another source of coins in the economy rather than these two mints in Denver and Philadelphia, you know, pumping out coins to 50 states and having to distribute to every zip code in the country, right? You're actually creating local recycling phenomena. And they realized very quickly that we were going to save them a ton of money from reduced manufacturing costs and more importantly, distribution costs. That was really exciting to them, but they were also confused. You're like this little startup company in Seattle. You know, you're not a customer. You know, we can't serve you. We can't regulate you. 
not a supplier and yet you're going to be so helpful to us. You know, what do we do with you? And we said, well, you don't do anything. I and mean, you essentially created this market of $150 billion a year. You've already done the work and now it's time to get the benefit. Um, so we just aligned the self-interest with the Fed and they were really helpful. I mean, a year later, I got a call from the Royal Mint in the UK um, and they've been talking to the Fed and they were hearing about how much money they were saving. And the Royal Mint, the Bank of England said, can come do the same thing for us. So I flew over, met with them. They set up all the meetings we needed within a week, and we rolled out a thousand machines in the UK uh, very quickly, which was much faster than we would have been able to do on our own. Um, and I like to say that my private sector shareholders got the benefit of our public sector participation, and we were accelerated because of the public sector. So it was really powerful. And the investors didn't have to you know, worry about is all this time with the Fed actually good for us so they could see it was just self-evident was built into the model. And similarly with the social sector, we got a call from UNICEF, uh, I think like a year after that. And UNICEF called us up and they said, hey, we've got this program called Trick or Treat for UNICEF. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, teenagers used to go around with these orange boxes and instead of getting candy, they collect coins for UNICEF as a, as a donation feature. And they said, listen, we love our UNICEF program and our trick-or-treat program, but we have two problems. One problem is half the kids never send us, never send the money in, and not because they're bad kids, but simply they forget to. And the other half of the kids actually do send us the money, and we have this problem of opening up, you know, 100,000 orange boxes having to coin the, count these things. So it was really easy. I told the UNICEF, listen, we're mission built for you. Um, our fee at that point was 8%. Uh, we cut our fee in half to 4%, and they put a message on the back of every uh, one of the boxes said, hey, take your coins down to the local Coinstar machine, punch in this four-digit code, and we just wired transfer through the funds to UNICEF, which they love. They had a 96% pass-through rate. And for Coinstar, we actually got, you know, great distribution and advertising that got people to the machines to use it. So from an investor standpoint, once investors saw how integrated the model was, uh, they were super supportive of everything. But in the beginning, it was kind of scary to talk about it, frankly. And as you became a public company, did that story change? Yeah, that's interesting. We took the company public. And as we talked through it, um, people were curious about it. And investors always had the same question. They thought coins were a one-time event, like people will bring their piggy banks in and never come back. And they're missing the whole flow conversation. So then I would have to explain to them how the mint produces and how the Fed recirculates. And investors quickly saw how integrated we were and how useful the Fed was. So then I could actually lean into the story and they could understand the marketplace. And similarly, they could understand why working with the social sector was so important and useful. So at the end, investors became really excited because the business model of Coinstar itself was integrated, right? Each sector both contributed to and benefited from. And we thought carefully about what's in the Fed's self-interest, what's in our self-interest, what's in UNICEF's um, self-interest. And we went on to raise money for you know, the Red Cross and World Wildlife Fund, a bunch of other people. So it, you couldn't really separate out the doing good from the doing well. They were just embedded in the model simultaneously. Now, one of the things people talk about is challenging as a public company is continuing to innovate. I'm curious how you did that. Yeah, it's interesting. I stayed with Coinstar through 2001. So I've been out for 20 years now. And I think it's a really interesting question on innovations of public company. And I don't know if I have any good answers to it. I mean, investors want you to stay focused on the growth markets that are out there. And at the same time, you need to look for new markets. So I don't have a, I don't have a quick answer to that one, but I think it's a challenge. And post Coinstar Life, you've now gotten involved in advising, investing, 
And you've started a nonprofit called New Impact. Yeah, it's interesting. I finished Coinstar when I was 39. And so that was kind of my late 20s and 30s. And in my 40s, I did, I guess, more standard things. I sat on boards. I got, you know, calls from lots of kiosk deals, um, people some someone nicknamed me the Elvis kiosk, which I thought was kind of funny. And it was interesting. I, you know, and I, I, I enjoyed working with other private sector companies. I worked with um, Eco ATM in uh, San Diego. I worked with Kimi in New York um, and looked at a lot of different kiosk models. I also started going to a lot of nonprofit luncheons and, uh, you know, donating $500 or $1,000. And that was a lot of my, my 40s. And it was just interesting to kind of step back and and think about it more from a not from an operator standpoint but more of a post founder standpoint and when i fit hit 50 i just got i was starting to get i guess concerned and and frustrated a little bit with what i was seeing happening out there i I mentioned at the top of the show that my parents uh, immigrated from Denmark and, you know, they had grown up during World War II and, and the Nazi occupation. So when they came to the U.S. in 1948, 1950, they really valued, you know, good government and democracy and freedom because they'd seen what had happened when you lost it. And, you know, we were raised with this idea of what does it mean to be a good citizen and how to participate? And they also brought with them the sense of, uh, you know, Nordic progressiveness and sensibilities and egalitarianism. And as I was, you know, looking around, I guess I was getting more frustrated with, with how government was functioning, right? I, I like my city a lot, my county a little less, my state a little less, and, you know, all the press about the federal government. And I felt like they were losing me. And I was like, wow, if they're losing me, someone who really cares about government, you know, what does that mean? And similarly, when I looked at the social sector, I felt like it was a little bit of Groundhog Day. And I was wondering, are we really solving the social sector problems at scale fast enough? So I just started leaning into doing some research in my early 50s. I went to a ton of conferences. I was really struck by, there was some study that said, you know, in the last 20 years or something that, you know, 50,000 nonprofits have scaled past a million dollars, whereas there's been, you know, over a million private sector ones that have. And I was just, I was struck that we weren't really getting somewhere. And similarly, I was frustrated with what was the perception of inefficiencies in the public sector. And the more I looked into it, I was really got intrigued about the Coinstar model. And at first I thought, well, maybe I could start another company and find some other inefficient market in the, um, in the public sector. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I could do another company and that would take me 10 years. And by the time I'm 60, which I'm almost now, you know, nothing will have changed. I'll have done two companies. And then I actually thought about starting an investment fund because I think this is a really powerful investment thesis that's unusual. And I looked at starting a fund and that didn't make sense to me. It was the first time it wouldn't, wouldn't have come together. And I think the opportunity is much bigger than that. And I think I surprised myself and a bunch of other people when I when I concluded that the best thing to do for this kind of tri-sector thinking was actually to create a nonprofit and just try to public good in a new way of thinking about creating business models. So I rotated into creating New Impact and our focus is really on tri-sector innovation and can we help more organizations you know, we started with companies. We're also working with social sector and public sector organizations to think in this way. And I'm happy to tell you a lot more about New Impact. Yeah, that's wonderful. Can you explain what the tri-sector model means? Sure. A tri-sector business model is, is basically a model where each sector both contributes resources to and benefits from the model. So in Coinstar, we had this $150 billion mark, dollar market created by the Fed. That was obviously great for Coinstar. We created a billion-dollar company um, out of that market. We've also saved the Fed billions of dollars um, over time by recycling coins so much more quickly and lowering their distribution costs. 
Similarly, Coinstar raised, you know, over $100 million for the nonprofit sector at a, at a reduced fee, which was great for them and was also good for Coinstar. So both contributing to and benefiting from. And I know you've had, you know, Jimmy from Propel on. I think they're a great example of tri-sector innovation. I met Jimmy and Jeff, I think four or five years ago, I've been lecturing about tri-sector models at Stanford and someone said, hey, there's these two guys in New York at Blue Ridge Labs, you know, thinking about food stamps. Um, and I met with them and what I saw was, hey, there are 45 million people in the US who are essentially users of the SNAP program or customers with $70 billion spending power. Um, and so like Coinstar, that's a big marketplace from the public sector. And I worked with Jimmy and Jeff to think through some of the early stages of how they could create a for-profit model that could make, make the SNAP program much more efficient and also think through ways to incorporate the, uh, the social sector. So one of the things we did is we thought about the SNAP user and what it's like for them to go through their day from when they wake up to when they sleep and how they interact with supermarkets, right? How they interact with Nonprofit organizations that might be helping with, you know, heating assistance or job applications or childcare, and how they interact with public sector organizations. And so, I think that Propel's part of Propel's success is it is essentially, like Coinstar, you know, embedded doing well and doing good into the core model and leveraging it. And how is it different from triple bottom line? Well. Triple bottom line can mean different things to, to different people. We think, um, so I'd be curious how you define it, but when we think about a tri-sector model, we're, we're trying to be very explicit. You know, we think there are unique and powerful resources within each sector, amazing private sector resources, amazing social sector resources, and amazing public sector resources. And for a tri-sector model, we encourage people to think about combining those resources in very specific and very pragmatic ways. And those might be as close as a, you know, contractual relationship, or they might not even know about it in the beginning. You know, if you think about the opportunity set, there are thousands of government programs between city, county, state, and federal and district programs. There are thousands of nonprofits, hundreds of thousands, and these private sector pieces. And, and how can you kind of mix and match these things? So, you know, in the case of Propel, they had a really powerful spending program from uh, the Department of Agriculture that was also backed up by a huge database, right, that talked about not only the balances for a SNAP user, but also where they spent their money, which was really, really useful, really useful. So Jimmy and Pell team could tap into that. They could also look at social sector resources, right, and combine those along with other private sector assets out there. So it's not so much of a triple bottom line model as it really is an integrated model that says, how can we just be smarter about how we use our resources and assets from all three sectors and actually embed them in the model with the self-interest of each organization uh, being honored? When I, when I talk with people and talk with you know, different founders, people running companies, I'll often ask them three questions. I'll say, hey, you know, what's your private sector strategy? And they'll generally give me a, a good answer, right? They're really prepared for that and think about how they're growing their company. But I'll also ask them, what's your social sector strategy? You know, how are you actually working with the nonprofit sector in a way that is useful to them and serves their core mission, right? And I encourage them to look for resources within the social sector that actually helpful to their own business. Then I'll also ask them, what's your public sector strategy? How do you work with government? And a lot of private sector folks, you know, will roll their eyes and say, well, we don't want to work with government. They're going to slow us down. They're going to regulate us. And I'm like, no, 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 think about this differently. There are vast and amazing resources in the public sector 
that could be useful to your business, what could you actually do with public sector assets that would be good for your business for growth and that also serves the needs of the um, of the public sector. I'll often say, hey, listen, I found a $150 billion market in my pocket full of pennies. You know, Jimmy found a $70 billion market and 45 million customers, you know, in an old federal program. And that's pretty powerful. There are huge opportunities out there if we can just get more founders and entrepreneurs and innovators thinking this way. Any suggestions on how to identify those public sector resources? Yeah, that's a lot of what we want to do at, at New Impact. I mean, we think about ourselves as a sort of a new way of innovating, a new way of assembling models. So, you know, similarly, we have design thinking, there's human-centered design, there's agile, there's all these movements. And our reason for being is to get tri-sector innovation, you know, adopted in the same way. So we think that that's a mindset shift, first of all, for people to think differently about this and learn about how to build these models. We think it's, it's very powerful with that. But we also think there needs to be um, data and tools. So we're starting to assemble some open source, open data tools that can be useful to anybody. So for instance, we have one tool that we've been prototyping called the New Impact Wiki, which essentially organizes resources across the sectors uh, by impact area, right? So. For instance, if I ask you, you know, who's on the team for, you know, food and hunger, right? You know, supermarkets are going to show up, restaurants, um, farm producers, they clearly have resources that are relevant. Tons of social sector organizations have resources around uh, food from, you know, food banks to, you know, vast variety of other groups out there. And there's a ton of public sector resources. And a new impact, we encourage people to take a human-centered design impact lens first. So let's think about the person we're trying to help first, and then think about the resources in a sector agnostic way. And then can we combine those resources in a way that's powerful, that really serves the needs of the people? So on the wiki, you have a list of all these resources and people can check it and update it themselves. Is that right? Yeah. So it's we're, uh, It's not public yet. We wish it were public. Um, I'm very committed to New Impact creating these tools as, as a public good. I'll tell you, as a, as a small 501c3, it's hard to build a tech platform. Uh, we have a ton of information on our website about the early stages of these tools and the prototypes that are out there. The wiki is actually up on AWS. It hasn't been coded enough to actually be publicly accessible. We'd love for some coders to get excited to help us get us out there. But essentially, you can go to the, the wiki today and say, you know, who's on the team for, you know, affordable housing or who's on the team for clean water? And we've organized resources across sectors by impact areas. So we use things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals or the Social Progress Index or other impact lenses to try to organize resources. And what's different about it, 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 it leads with impact first and then organization second. So it's a very powerful way to kind of look at resources across sectors. You know, we, we wish that Google had this, right? So you could just go to Google and say, show me all the resources out there relative to any particular area you're interested in, um, but it's not built that way. And we think the world needs something like this. What are the challenges to building software as a nonprofit? Well, a lot. I mean, so our business model as, as a nonprofit involves getting grants and doing fee-for-service work. But I'd say it's interesting that 
the nonprofit sector, I would say in general, doesn't understand technology or scale in the same way. And we have a crazy huge vision for what these tools could be. It's also challenging to hire software engineers. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly competitive market. And for someone to pass up a private sector opportunity and stock options and the ability to you know build the next cool product and build something that's a public good for nonprofit is a big ask. That's a problem we're trying to solve right now. We'd love it if any of your listeners know, you know, tech for good programmers who are interested on it. We'd love to engage with them because we think these tools are important. I've been resisting the temptation to privatize these tools. We think this is, you know, really powerful stuff. Be very simple for us, frankly, to create a consulting company or an investment advisory firm out of this. But we think the opportunity set for rethinking how society uses its resources is really vast, and we think it needs to be a public good. And what is available today publicly? Publicly, you can go to our website today. There are you know, a number of examples, case studies on the site. We also have detailed information about a variety of projects we've done. We're in the early stages to developing what we call an innovator's toolkit for tri-sector innovation. And we're looking forward to developing this more and rolling it out at scale. You know, sort of the vision we have is you know, if you could think about every single incubator or accelerator or venture studio like your own, who actually, you know, taught tri-sector innovation or tri-sector models to their cohorts, how many more organizations start thinking like this? If we think about, you know, every venture fund or every private equity fund, if they could review their portfolio companies and think about integrating public sector and social sector resource in the way we're talking about, we think they could augment their returns and create stronger models that actually embed impact and financial return into the model. We wonder about, you know, if every university, you know, taught this in their business schools or their public policy schools or their computer science programs, what could it look like if this was actually a methodology or a mindset that we used out there? You know, we've thought about, you know, what would it be like if community foundations did the same thing with all their grantees or, you know, federal or government programs. And I think the opportunity we have as a society is to just to rethink about how we deliver goods and services with this approach. You know, if, if you step back and think about it at the highest economic level, we have about $250 trillion of assets in the U.S. alone. I mean, not the financial assets, but everything we've ever built, you know, sort of the balance sheet of the country. And a new impact, we think a lot about, you know, how can we repurpose those assets across the sectors? I mean, things that may have been built for, you know, purpose A or B, they can also be used for C, D, and E, right? So repurposing existing assets is kind of core to our mindset. And then thinking about realigning them in really interesting ways and recombining. So you don't have to build everything from, from scratch, right? And importantly, finding ways to harness the self-interest so these things can actually scale and then do it for common benefit. So that's it's an exciting thing for us to think about. We'd love for this to happen. I'll give you one example. We had a, a grant from a um, foundation in New Jersey who has to do some work in Newark. So we started to work with Rutgers Business School. We had an internship program and we needed space. And so we went to talk to Newark Venture Partners, which is a small uh, $50 million venture fund. And they gave us space for our graduate students to do some of this innovation work. But they also asked us to you know, teach the cohort that was in there around tri-sector models. And so we gave a lunch and learn for an hour and we met uh, the company Mochafi and its founder, Wally Coaxman, who 
encourage you to reach out to. And Wale was really interested in what we were, we were doing. He was trying to solve the problem of, of credit for uh, low-income black and brown communities in urban, setter, urban settings where the banking system has really withdrawn. And we were talking with him, and I was so intrigued by what Wally was doing. He basically said, you know, the Section 8 housing program is a $45 billion program. And he identified that as a powerful public sector database, right? And what he realized was that if people paid their rent on time, it actually said something about their credit score. And they actually had a higher credit score than what the credit rating agencies were doing. And he was, so he got really interested. He said, listen, I'm basically taking a public sector resource and trying to repurpose it in a way to enhance credit, right? Section 8 housing wasn't built for that but it could be used for that. So he has basically started his company and is growing very nicely by using a tri-sector model. He's a for-profit company. He's integrating with public sector databases. Um, he's now actually rolling out with cities and using a city strategy. And he's also working very closely with the nonprofit sector. So that's an example of what we think that happened with tri-sector innovation. We just think there's a huge opportunity set here for people to think differently. And then we want to build the data tools to make it easy for people to find these resources and realign them. I think founders and investors are used to thinking of government as a customer, but you're really talking about a partner where maybe even money isn't changing hands. Exactly. But there's a data asset or there's a market that's been developed. Yeah, you, you, you totally get it, Miles. The you know, so many times if you go to three thousand Sand Hill Road, or at least ten or fifteen years ago, and say, "Hey, I want to sell the government," you know, they're going to roll their eyes. It's a long sales cycle, you know, very slow. But if you think about government as a provider of resources and aligning interests, it unlocks things in a very powerful way. I, it's funny. I talked to some of my private sector friends, and they they roll their eyes about you know government and stuff, and. I'm like, hey guys, if you think there's some inefficient government program out there, you ought to be excited because opportunities exist where inefficiencies are. And the government serves up this you know, wonderful ocean of inefficiencies that we can lean into. And I get excited about the, whatever, we have over a hundred social sector programs. You know, Jimmy's been working on Propel, Wally's working on Section 8 housing. But what if we looked at every single part of the social safety net and we thought about it with a tri-sector lens. It's a vast opportunity that's out there. So yeah, I mean, the, the default is think about, you know, government as either customer or regulator. We're encouraging people to think about government as resource provider and collaborator. And it can be direct, right? With a contract and those sort of things, but it can also just be aligned. Like with the Fed and Coinstar, we didn't have any contract. We just built our model in a way that was powerful and I, it, powerful to them. So they wanted to support and accelerate us. And I remember the early days talking with Jimmy and Jeff when they were trying to figure out Propel and, and the state level uh, food stamp or SNAP program implementers. And they're like, when should we talk to them? And I said, wait, but fundamentally build your model in a way that helps the state programs be more successful. Think about what their mission is to serve people on food stamps and build Propel in a way that serves them. Similarly with the Department of Ag, right? Think about what their mission is, right? And align what Propel is doing with the Department of Ag. And that's worked out beautifully. I think Jimmy was actually invited to be on the uh, Department of Ag Innovation Program, just like I, I got a call from the Fed. So it's a mindset shift, Miles, for people to see government differently. I mean, government is, is really an extraordinary place with vast resources. We just need to be smarter about how we use them. So let's say you're an aspiring founder who's listening to this podcast and you want to take that charge of, oh, there's a hundred government programs that could be addressed and used and folded in with a new business model, as you've suggested, how do you go about 
doing this business model canvas process that you guys recommend and how is it different than a normal customer development process? Well, this is why we're trying to create tools and a process for innovators. So funny you mentioned a business canvas because we have actually developed a tri-sector business model innovation canvas, which we'll have up on the website soon. It's not automated today. It's simply something that people can fill out and start to ask these questions. Where we want to take this is at a place where there's a data platform that makes it easy. Because very few people have time to, you know, research every government organization and figure out where the databases are, where the resources are. But if we can do that right, we think we will unlock and accelerate a really, you know, extraordinary level of um, opportunity. And I, I can give you a couple examples. Like I am really interested in the biggest government program out there, which is retirement and social security. It's a trillion dollar program. And I think there's a great opportunity for some early stage founders or existing companies to rethink what it's like to turn 65 or 62 to 67 and how that program gets utilized. I think that's uh, uh, really quite powerful. So today, you know, we're hopeful that founders will start to think this way and do their own research. Um, they can go to our website and sort of get some inspiration and some ideas and some, you know, I'd say, you know, basic 101 tools where we want to take new impact is to really develop a compelling set of open data, open source tools that's collaborative, right? You know, we'd love to map out every government entity from city to federal, all nonprofits and every company, and essentially put everybody on the team. That's kind of an expression we use internally, new impact, like, you know, who's on the team for housing? I think that's a huge opportunity right now. Who's on the team for water, food, education, transportation, and just start have people start thinking differently. And I think for founders who are starting, you know, they don't have to build everything themselves. Uh, going back to the Propel story for a moment, one of the coolest things I think that uh, Jimmy and the team did was they created a map that localized uh, where all the supermarkets were for, um, uh, for the, the local SNAP users, but they also identified the farmer's markets and they identified the farmer's markets because there's a federal program that gives money to every state that will double the value of food stamp benefits if you shop at a farmer's market and buy fresh vegetables, right? It was a fairly unknown a program at the time, but they essentially took an existing resource and the database and put it on their map very quickly. And they didn't have to build that themselves. It was a great way for them to provide value to their customers with an existing database that was already out there, but they had to hunt and peck and find those things. And at New Impact, we want to accelerate this sort of change by making all this stuff much more visible uh, to everyone. Wonderful. Do you mind touching on another example of a company? I know you list a few others on your website. Yeah, I can. There's a I mean, there's a company that we're not involved with that I that I really love called What Three Words, which is a, a UK based company. And are you familiar with What Three Words, Mile? Have you heard about them? Is this a location company? Yeah. So they they essentially took an existing public sector resource, right, which is the global GPS system, which was invested on invest created by public sector, right? And instead of having people, you know, speak, you know, latitude and longitude, they essentially took the globe and they cut it up and I think whatever 47,000 three by three meter uh, squares, and then they gave each square a unique address, right? So they've taken this <clears throat> public sector resource called the GPS system, right? And they've made it way easier for people uh, to use just by being smart about how they, how they use that, that data. And it's really been extraordinary. I know one of the earliest stories for them is 
they started working, I think, in Mongolia, where the postal service was having trouble delivering mail, right? And in Mongolia, they've actually adopted what three words as the standard for, as a standard for mail delivery. So instead of writing down an address, you can just say, well, you know, here's, you know, your your table, fork, chair, address, and go right there. So really useful to take public resource, public sector resource, and actually create good for the public sector. Um, They also do cool things like for delivery companies, right? So if you're delivering food to a, you know, downtown hotel or restaurant, the address is going to send you to the front door, not the loading dock. But if you can give a precise location for the loading dock at the back, you can save a lot of drive time and fuel, for instance, that just makes it easier to get there. And I think they've even been working with USAID and the World Bank to deliver goods to developing uh, countries so they could drop off goods at a specific location. And the local tribe or group may not know the GPS location, but they can uh, identify the location with their um, uh, with their what three words piece. So I think they're a great example of a private sector company using a public sector built resource and then innovating on it and creating value for all three sectors. Yeah, it's a fascinating company. I don't yeah. know them personally, but I've played with the product. Yeah, I think that I think they have a huge opportunity. You know, I'll tell you another story that was interesting. I when we were at Rutgers working in in Newark, uh, Rutgers Business School was very supportive of our work. And I talked on several panels and for, you know, how to, you know, sort of innovate in in business school and what business schools ought to be be teaching. And and two things came out of that. You know, one is I was on a panel with the CEO of of one of the big pharma companies, um, subsidiaries. And he said, you know, this is really interesting. He said, you talk about government in a way that, you know, that we don't. And he says, you know, we do a lot of work and we're under NDA with this company, so I can't disclose it. But they are a big pharma company, and the Veterans Administration was one of their biggest customers. Uh, so going back to this, this sort of mindset of government as customers. But in reality, they could actually create a tri-sector model that was much more useful. So we did a big map for them. So we mapped all the, the VA's resources, which was really interesting. Uh, they were actually working in the mental health um, space. Uh, we also then looked deeply at the social sector and thought about the mental health issues that the social sector uh, dealt with. And I remember talking to one of the VPs after we had gone through sort of the tri-sector thinking. And he said, you know, there's a couple of things you've done for me today. He says, one is I always thought about, you know, the nonprofit sector as an advocacy group or, or groups that we would, you know, you know uh, make donations to. He says, what you've taught me today is the social sector actually knows more about mental health issues because they're on the front lines than we do, right? And they're a, they actually have a vast source of information that can be really integrated to our product. And similarly said, I've always thought about the VA as, as a customer, but similar to the Fed story or to the Department of Ag story, they could think about them much more as collaborator. And I said, listen, you know, imagine now that you understand the VA's resources and you really cared about solving this mental health issue, what would you do with your knowledge in the private sector if you could control any of the VA's resources to create a better outcome for the person suffering from the mental health issue? And that flipped his mind to thinking differently. And I said, imagine you were the head of the VA and you came to head up your private sector company. How would the head of the VA use your private sector resources and what if you were both united about creating better outcomes on, on mental health? So that it's just a, it, one of the things I really like about that is it's a headset shift for seeing uh, government differently. And that came out of the work that we did um, in Newark with Rutgers. The other story I'll tell is that Rutgers asked me to be their commencement speaker. So that was fun to 
talk with a um, with the students and have them think about trisector innovation. And after the speech, one of the one of the uh, trustees came up to me and he said, "God, this is so interesting." He said, "You know, I'm working with this company, and I apologize, I don't remember the name of it." that's working on a, on a biodegradable uh, oil uh, for propellers. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? I don't know about that. And he said, well, if every ship in the ocean that's transporting you know, goods across the ocean by design leaks a little bit of oil out the back where it's you know, propeller shaft goes into the, um, into the hull and it's designed as a positive pressure system. And we're essentially creating you know, some number of Exxon, the Exxon Valdez oil spills daily globally by all these ships leading slug trails out back. And this company had a better product, which was biodegradable and, and could break down faster, but they were having trouble growing. And what he got excited by is he says, listen, I know the EPA has this database that shows every single ship out there. And in terms of when it changes its oil and the brand of the oil, and he says, I know the Coast Guard has an enforcement mechanism, but those two databases aren't linked. So it was really fun for me to see him get sort of this trisector aha, where he could think about, oh, this EPA resource could be incredibly helpful to us as a company. And if we can also work with the Coast Guard, that'd be a way to accelerate or, you know, our growth as a private sector company. So that's just a way we get people thinking differently about the opportunities that are out there. Thanks for those additional examples. I appreciate it. When we were chatting before, you mentioned universal basic service, which is different than universal basic income, which some of our listeners may be familiar with from conversations we've had with Andrew Yang on the podcast. Can you explain universal basic service? Yeah, it's it's interesting. My own personal journey on UBI is, I think I heard about it first at the School World Forum back in 2014 or 2015 when I was starting, you know, kind of my journey. And I thought it just sounded like a crazy idea um, and wasn't interested in it at all. But as I've been spending more and more time around the social safety net system in the U.S. and other places and really looking what it's like to be low income in the U.S., I mean, the reality is I think the stat is something like 50% of the U.S. population, maybe even 60% now post-pandemic or in the pandemic, you know, has less than $500 of savings. And so there's this tremendous sort of mental burden that Andrew Yang talks about or the, you know, the boot on the throat that's out there. And so as I started to, you know, learn more about the social and safety net, I started to get intrigued that UBI might actually be, you know, a stronger solution as an option for people as opposed to the social safety net. And I got really interested in it. My thinking has kind of evolved some since then. Last year, we were asked by the Mortgage Family Foundation in Denver to take a look at food insecurity. And in particular, they were doing work with a local food bank, charitable food bank in Denver called Metro Caring. And that Metro Caring got really interested in the concept of food as a public utility. And this had been work that had been pioneered by an um, economics professor named John Eichert, who'd written a fair bit about, you know, could food or be considered a public utility. Anyway, so New Impact was hired to think about what would a business model look like for a public utility, a new public utility around food. And all this information, by the way, is on our website. People can click through and we've got pages and pages of stuff on this. But as we were leaning into food and doing a lot of research and, and using our sort of tri-sector innovation tools, one of the things that became really interesting to us was uh, the question of data and the question of access. And our focus really, you know, if you look at the entire food system, there's vast inefficiencies in the food system. I mean, 40% of the 
food in the country that we produce is wasted. There's massive externalities with climate change and all these sort of things. And as we lean into it, we realize that sort of the, the end goal of the food system is what we call healthy desired food in people's stomachs three times a day, 365 days a year. And what would the world look like if everybody had access to healthy uh, desired food? It sounds like a crazy idea, but we think it's powerful. And so one of the elements of the uh, utility model that we've been proposing is this concept of universal basic food. And we debated a lot, you just give people more money, like through a UBI mechanism to buy more food, or what about if you gave them the food themselves? And the more we talk to people and expert, um, experts out there, we thought there was way more power to actually give food directly to people and give them choice. So we've been pioneering this concept around universal basic food. And one of the interesting things about moving to, which is an example of a universal basic service, one of the powerful things about giving the food directly as opposed to the money is it's a much bigger, much bigger lever on the system. You take the profit motive out of, out of the dollar, right? I mean, if you give someone a dollar, they can still go buy a bag of Doritos, which is fine if they want to buy a bag of Doritos, that's their choice. But it has all the advertising packaging costs that are systemic in the food system. But if you gave them, you know, access to a hundred items of food that, you know, covered nutritional desiring needs, you actually solve the problem we're trying to get to much more directly. And importantly, creates a financial model that we think is sustainable and scalable because you can take a lot of the excess costs out of the system. So my own thinking has been moving more along the lines of um, universal basic services as an alternative to some of the social safety net. The work we've done, again, it's all public on the new impact.care site. Uh, we've actually been asked to, to look at housing potentially as a public utility. And we're particularly intrigued by these public utility models right now as an option that could be delivering more UB, um, you know, universal basic services, you know, in a, in a, you know, as an option to consider instead of UBI. And we, we basically think these things should be tested and explored. There's tons of reasons why they could fail, but we think it's an interesting way to rethink how we deliver goods and services in the country. Well, I have a lot more to learn about that. And I appreciate you sharing that. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to do it. And I would just encourage, you know, all of your listeners who are starting companies or existing companies to really think about a tri-sector mindset out there. And I think they can grow their companies faster, can unite profit and purpose, and they can still scale more quickly. And part of our work is to inspire this type of thinking. And another part of our work is to really try to help some develop some of the data tools. Um, and also I'm curious if anybody's interested just to, to reach out to us. Um, we're very collaborative, we're very open, and we believe there's a huge opportunity for us to just rethink how we become more innovative as a society to deliver, deliver what we all want. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Thanks, Miles. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.